Fatal Accident Act Claims Part 1, Care Claims. You're listening to The Civil Lawcast, a regular series on issues of interest and developments in civil law, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, we are Emily Formby and Romilly Cummerson, barristers of 39 Essex Chambers. In this episode of Civil Lawcast, we're going to talk about Fatal Accident Act claims with a particular emphasis on care claims. Hello, I'm Romilly Cummerson and I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers. Hi Romilly, so we're going to talk today about Fatal Accident Act claims and um, one of the things that is of particular interest and I think is difficult for people to recognise is some of the differences between Fatal Accident Act claims, which are entirely creatures of statute, and normal person or more common personal injury claims which are often mixtures of common law and practice with a bit of statute thrown in so it's quite a codified um, process and um, it gives you the sort of groundwork for what you need to look at when bringing a claim and one of the things that's quite different about um, the claim is is who can bring a claim so the first thing we want to look at is who's able to make a claim and there are two types of claims that can be made, bereavement being the first and the second being dependency. Yes, well bereavement's a very narrow category, we're not going to dwell on that too much today because we're concerned uh, predominantly with dependency claims with this podcast, Um, but as I've said bereavement's a narrow category, Um, it's restricted to spouses, um, a claim for the parents of legitimate children under 18. Um, you don't get anything as, uh, as a child who loses a parent for bereavement. Um, similarly, if the child is illegitimate, only the mother can claim bereavement damages, nothing for the father. And no claim in respect of the death of non-birth children, so stepchildren not included. Um, there are plans afoot to change the law. Case of Smith and Lancashire Teaching Hospital um, from 2017 found that it, the narrow category of bereavement damages was uh, incompatible with Articles 8 and 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights. And that was particularly with regard to the fact that cohabitees don't, don't have a right to claim bereavement damages. So a change is expected but has not yet been implemented consultation has been underway. It's right, isn't it, that there's a plan to change that law. Um, There's a challenge to um, whether cohabitees under two years should be uh, entitled to claim. Um, There was the challenge of Smith and Lancashire teaching, which found it was incompatible with the Human Rights Act for cohabitees of more than two years to have dependency but not bereavement. Um, And all the way through, um, the Court of Appeal decision confirmed that cohabitees should have equal rights for bereavement and dependency Um, and the act was drawn up that included both cohabitees of two years plus and children under 18 whose parents died at the moment children have no claim Um, but unfortunately the legislation has currently uh, been shelved and stalled while other matters are dealt with but hopefully that change will come in due course it's been waiting now for more than two years. Yes, of course, delays on everything at the moment. So hopefully that will get that get moving swiftly. (laughs) That's Um, right. In terms of dependency claims, there's a much wider category. Um, The category is for relationships of affinity and co-sanguinity. So that do love that co-sanguinity. I mean, what a word that is in the modern (laughs) age. eh? Uh, I always like to refer to that as often as possible. Anyway, what does it mean, Romilly? What does it mean? There's a statutory list and there's no discretion um, for the court to extend it. Um, And the list includes parents, children, 
spouses and former spouses, uh, cohabitees for a period of over two years. Um, we're going to come back to that in a moment. It also goes beyond the family, immediate family unit to grandparents, grandchildren. It could be in-laws, cousins, nieces and nephews. Um, obviously, in this modern era, it would also include blended families. So stepchildren are included, but but the child of a surviving unmarried partner cannot be a dependent, even if living within the same family unit. Um, and as we'll hear later on in this podcast, foster children also not included within that list. I think it's important to note that this is a statutory list. And so challenges to the list have, have, have not been successful. Uh, but it is a list that allows a real, even if it's a prospective reliance or dependency. So it includes unborn children um, or a dependency that might not arise uh, until a later age. So grandparents uh, may have a reliance as they become older uh, on children uh, and show that dependency in that way. Yes, absolutely. As long as you can show a reasonable expectation of a dependency uh, and you fit within the list, you can qualify. I think the final thing we need to say at this stage about who can claim is that it has to be brought within one claim. All the potential dependents have to make one claim under one claim form uh, uh, and meet together in order to do that. That can sometimes lead to uh, difficulties when you have, uh, say, a spouse and a former spouse who are uh, acting to uh, have to act together in order to um, uh, bring a claim for dependency um, and, and indeed for services, as, as, as we're going to, to talk about in this podcast, uh, because, of course, they're trying to divide up um, one pie between them. And that can sometimes lead to difficult negotiations. I think we've all had cases where you've had to kind of go between different rooms with uh, uh, families or part families or ended families or blended families, none of whom care for each other very much, but have to come together in order to negotiate or resolve a claim um, and, and act under one claim form. Yes, that's right. And that reference to reasonable expectation is important because they don't have to have had that dependency at the time of the death if there was a reasonable expectation of it arising in due course. Um, and it, it's not a particularly defined concept that um, benefit that you have the reasonable expectation of. There's no prescriptive method by which it's identified or calculated. Um, I think the, the Court of Appeal has described it as just being something that is capable of being quantified in money terms. And if you can establish a reasonable expectation of that, that will suffice. So that could be something in the future as well as something that's already existing. Exactly. Um, as long as you have a substantial possibility of that dependency in the future, um, then you can bring yourself within uh, that range of benefits, can't you? Yes, as long as you can establish reasonable expectation that it, it doesn't matter that uh, your dependency has not yet arisen at the time of the death. So we're really in the moment, really, we're focusing on looking at uh, what are called the sort of lost services claims. The lost services is set out in Section 3 of the Fatal Accident Act. Um, and um, you're really looking at that dependency on a service. So a really obvious example is uh, where the deceased is a parent um, looking after children and obviously those children have a reliance on the service that's provided uh, by by the um, parent but services is used I think um, uh, advisedly rather than providing of care because a service can be 
much greater than than what we generally think of as providing care, as in um, you know looking after somebody in 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 that in their sort of fabric of the daily round. Because services can be sort of DIY, they can be um, driving people around, they can be gardening for a neighbour, they can be all sorts of things that are rendering assistance that um, can be translated into um, a money format or, or kind of quantified in money terms. And, and they can abort the a financial dependency claim in the sense of that there can be a services claim, for example, for management of household finances uh, and investments. And that, that could also form part of the services claim. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So it's not just because obviously you've got your dependency on actual income, but you can be rendering a service, a financial service as well. Yes, if one if one party in the family takes responsibility for the household finances and investments and, and has particular skill in that area, that, that is also something that can form part of the services claim. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and when you're looking at what that, um, that service or what that dependency on the service might look like, uh, it's determined, obviously the deceased's already died, so it's determined by the life expectancy of the survivors. So um, if you have the life expectancy of a survivor, um, uh, that would be the length of time um, that that service could be rendered. Uh, but of course, you have to have some sight as to how long it could have continued um, if the deceased hadn't died. So um, the life expectancy will be the survivor if it's lower than the life expectancy of the deceased before they died. That sounds a bit odd, but um, you have to look at the sort of relative ages or the relative life expectancy of the two of them, um, and it'll be the shorter period of time, obviously, because um, if so, for example, I suppose it's better if you look at it as an example, if you had a young, a young man that had died and he had rendered the service of mowing his grandfather's lawn every day um, or every week, um, the grandfather would be able to claim that loss of service but it would be time limited to the reasonable expectation uh, of the time that the grandfather would have been the beneficiary of having his lawn mown. What's the court's approach to this kind of claim? Well there's an element here Emily of the court attempting to reach a jury award Um, so that's to say the judge putting himself in the position of a jury awarding damages and finding the sum which appears to be reasonable compensation. So they're looking at it overall as a lump sum for the loss sustained. What what is reasonable compensation for that loss? It's not an exact science. There's often an awful lot of uncertainty in the information. What you're trying to do is project forward over what would have been someone's lifespan to try and work out um, what services they would have provided for, to various members of their, their family, which is obviously uh, not an easy exercise and not one to which you can apply any mathematical certainty. So often what the court will do is apply percentage reductions to a calculation to, to reflect the uncertainties involved. So I suppose one of the things you're going to be looking at is how to sort of divide up the pot. Because you know when, when we look at loss of earnings or dividing up uh, loss of earnings in a dependency claim you know you know that you're never going to be able to spend more than the income that was coming in so however many people there are making a claim um, you've got to obviously divide that pie between them I suppose with services um, you could be a bit freer because people can have a range of things they do for others but you have to have an eye to realistically how much time they're going to have I suppose so you know if you've got somebody who's um, working a full-time job six days a week they're going to have much less time to provide gratuitous services like mowing lawns or babysitting or whatever it may be. 
Yeah, yes, that's right. And it can lead to some strange calculations. I remember having one case of a relatively elderly lady who died and she provided a lot of childcare to her grandchildren. But the, the grandchildren belonged to three different children and each of them then made their separate provision for childcare after she died. And technically, as each of the grandchildren had their own claim for a services dependency, it could have led to a grossly inflated services claim that would have accounted for far more time than she could ever have provided to, to those children. Um, and I think both parties, although the claim ultimately settled, both parties took the view that they needed to take a pragmatic approach to work out the mathematical calculation of what each child had needed to... I suppose what each child needed to recover. Yes, what each child had needed to replace her services, but then to provide... then to make an overall reduction to reflect the fact that it simply wasn't reasonable to provide for services of 30 hours a day for her grandchildren because clearly yeah. that wouldn't have been possible. So I suppose your sense check would be normally with a claimant you start off with what's the claimant's need but in hmm. that instance you might say well what's their need and all three children or all the grandchildren wanted after school care but actually granny's only got the hours between five and eight or whatever it may be so between them they've all got to slot into that three-hour slot yes yes she was taking them all, yeah. all well, together hmm. i mean i have to say i don't don't know exactly how a court would approach that but on settling the claim both parties took the view that it was highly unlikely that a court would ever award the, the full amount that each child required and there would be yes a sense check that said that's simply not not a reasonable sum because she could never have provided that yeah i mean i, I you know I, I you hear of dependency reports from care experts i have to say in my experience they're um even less welcome than care experts in 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 civil cases because often you're just taking on taking over the role i guess it's more probably that of the judge or uh those that are involved in advising on the case because you're looking at what you know, could be done or would be done. But I suppose on some instances, it can be useful to try and tease out all those different elements. So saying, well, you know, granny looked after the kids after school, but actually what that entailed, and therefore to be able to put some sort of um, time on it and then have either a sense check or, or some kind of valuation of what that actually represented. Yes, I have, have to say my experience has been um, very much the same as yours in that the courts are very keen to say we don't need an expert i can i can tell you how many hours that would take um and they, they do seem far less keen to rely on experts than they would be in a personal injury case re regardless of how unreasonable that approach yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah or how much sort of i mean what you end up doing is using your own experience which um is just another form of evidence i guess but um but i mean i, I suppose as with financial dependency um, the dependents have to show that the service would have continued, so the, the deceased would have continued to provide a service. Uh, so um, going back to my grandfather and grandson, if, if, if the grandson only mowed the lawn once in a blue moon, he's not going to be able to really make a claim that it was done every weekday or every Saturday or whatever it may be, if there wasn't any good evidence of the service being provided, or if he was about to go off and uh, leave home and, you know, set up home somewhere else, uh, then the chances of that service being provided in the future uh, would be, you know, less amenable. So I guess you have to have evidence showing you're going to continue to provide the service and for how long. 
Yes, that, that's right. And I've certainly found that that can be a lot more difficult in the case of um, parents who deceased parents who weren't living with their children at the time of death. It can be a lot more difficult to try and evidence um, the services they've provided in those circumstances. Yeah. A lot of the case law and a lot of the difficulty arises over replacing the primary carer. So um, effectively the replacement nanny and what, what you get for the nanny mm. and you know the cost of that carer um, coming into the family unit. Um, because it can be a very expensive um, exercise and the um, temptation is to look at what a reasonable need would be. But of course that's not the test in fatal accident tax claims. Um, it's not a reasonable need, it's what was actually done, isn't it? Yes, it is one of the key areas, I think, in, in which the fatal accidents claims differ so markedly from other personal injury claims. Because, as you say, it may be that a particular parent was providing far more than would be considered to be reasonable uh, in an ordinary personal injury claim. Um, but nevertheless, if there's a reasonable expectation that it would have been provided, uh, then it, it should be recovered. For example, if you if the parent who died was, was one of those parents who devoted all of their time to their child and drove them to and from sporting events and different classes and really devoted all of their time to providing services to their child, then, then you could end up with a far more substantial uh, services claim than would be considered to be reasonable for a replacement care claim in personal injury. And, and, and not only that, you get a situation when you can enhance the commercial cost of the care provider to reflect mm. the special features of um, parental care, love and attention that's been lost. So it's a kind of complete opposite of a non-fatal case <coughs> where you look at the actual cost so far as it's calculated uh, instead of the gratuitous care or instead of the sort of extra love. And indeed, you reduce the damages claim if it's gratuitously provided. Whereas in the Fatal Accident Act, you get the commercial cost plus an uplift for the loss of the love and affection, the special features of that care provision. Mm. And even more so with the section for disregard. So any um, any ben benefit that arises as a result of the death due to section four is disregarded when you're looking at the settlement. So in fact, if there has been gratuitous care provided by another relative as a stopgap, you disregard that care when you're looking at valuing the service that's been lost. Yeah, yes, and you would still claim that at the commercial commercial rate, the loss of the service um, that, that would have been provided, which is, I think, one of the features of fatal accidents at claims that has um, caused them to uh, incur the wrath of the Supreme Court on occasion, and I think Jonathan Sumption in particular, not too keen on, on some of the, the, the windfall aspects of fatal accidents claims, as I think he would... He would be using. Yeah, well, it's pretty clearly set out in the statute, so it's not always very care. Um, so it's not always very fair to um, have a pop in court. I guess it's a matter of parliament, but um, there we are. That, that's never stopped them, though. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. So not yet. look at the case of Knauer and MOJ, which is obviously famous for uh, many other things, but Knauer is also um, quite an interesting case in terms of services um, because. Um, the um, deceased Mrs. Knauer died at 46 of mesothelioma and the defendant argued that in the five years between her death and the claim coming to its fruition, 
Mr. Knauer hadn't actually employed anybody to provide the services that Mrs. Knauer had provided when she died. So he hadn't had anybody to help him cook or clean or garden or decorate or housekeep or all the myriad services that she rendered unto him when she was still alive. And therefore argued that there shouldn't be a claim for the lost services because there was nothing that had been lost. And indeed, because he was coping fine without them being replaced, neither should there be a claim for lost services in the future. Um, now, Mr. Knauer said he actually hadn't been able to afford to employ help to provide services for him. Um, and he would have done had he had the money. And indeed, the tasks hadn't been done. So it wasn't a matter of, you know, mm. um, managing fine. He just had let things go or he'd had to do them himself. And, um, you know, that that was no basis for not making a claim. And Mr. Justice Bean was on side with him and rejected the defendant's arguments pretty swiftly, saying it um, ignored the basic principles of tort and the basic outline of the Fatal Accident Act claim. And he went um, right back to um, quoting Hay and Hughes, which is a, a, a veritable case of 1975, where Lord Edmund Davis said, the fact that a widower decided to manage himself after the death of his wife would not disentitle him to sue for and recover damages for the pecuniary loss that he had sustained, uh, which pretty much was word for word the answer to uh, Mr. Knauer's dilemma. So the court has to look at what's been lost, not, as it would in a personal injury claim, um, at the replacement cost. So um, essentially, in a, if that had been a personal injury claim, there would be no commercial cost for care because it hadn't been paid for, it hadn't been used, and no loss had arisen. But here, you look at what were the services that would have been rendered, they weren't rendered, and therefore there's a loss to be recovered at a full commercial rate. Yes, absolutely. A, a feature, I suppose, of the fact that what we're looking at here is the value of the services that would have been provided as, as opposed to costs that have been incurred. Yeah. Though I do say I quite, quite like the idea of uh, widowers managing themselves. <laughs> I know. That, uh, yeah, well, that... Uh, delightfully old-fashioned yes um, <laughs> well yeah it makes me think of crumpets by the fire but there we are that might just be because mm. it's tea time um <laughs> so yeah so the other thing to remember is that you don't plead it at gratuitous care rates it's a non, non-commercial care is uh, pleaded at commercial cost because uh, you're looking at replacement replacement of service and you don't have to worry about whether or not it's been replaced and you don't have to worry about whether or not it's been done for free yeah and surprisingly that that is something that does still, I think, get forgotten relatively regularly. You see schedules of loss where it is pleaded at the gratuitous care rate. I think just through force of habit, really, more than anything else, that's what people are used to pleading when they're looking at services provided by a family member and go on to autopilot. So it's a good one to keep in mind. Yeah, um, McGregor reminds us to do that. So um, he that that looks at cases and and uh, looks at loss of services and and says that only one of the cases looked at had actually there been somebody engaged to provide the nanny housekeeping rate. Uh, in all the others, family members had rallied round, as is often the case. Uh, so there wasn't a commercial loss, and there'd been resistance by the defendant to um, awarding that commercial cost. But nonetheless, that had been the basis of the development. That had been the de- basis of the judgment and. Um, that had been the compensation recovery damages. So uh, there they were. Yeah. And indeed, you can't, uh, as we've said before, due to section four, you can't say, well, even if you have the commercial cost of care, I'm going to discount all the gratuitous assistance that has been provided because that's a reason because of death. And so you leave it out because of section four. 
It's difficult, isn't it, as assessing the nanny housekeeper type rates, though, when you've got older children in particular, working out what, what those costs might be, because it would be unusual for anyone to um, actually engage a, a nanny for older children. Yeah, I think that's true, but I think that's partly because we make the mistake of seeing the rendering of service peculiarly in mm. the provision of stuff. So, you know, when you've got little children and you can see, right, you need to be entertained, you need to, you know, have somebody hold your hand when you walk, you need to be dressed, you need to be fed, you need to be clothed. And there's lots and lots and lots of practical activity that needs to be done. But actually with older children, the fact that they may uh, be able to get themselves out of bed and dressed and actually the service you render is to stand at the bottom of the stairs and shout, where are you, where are you, you're going to miss the school bus. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever I mean, you know, just a supposition Speaking but you know your own experience <laughs> i couldn't possibly comment um you know that doesn't render it less of a service and and that doesn't mean it's less important for their kind of uh smooth running of the household and it doesn't mean that that isn't that that was what was being done um and i often think that is quite hard that you sort of somehow uh you know, the family unit, I mean, obviously, you know, once you become 20, 25, 30, I can see, you know, there may be an end point, but when you've effectively got um, older children or teenagers that are still full-time at home, um, were still full-time living with, you know, whatever family unit it was, it's now been rent asunder by by the fatal incident. Um, and, you know, the, the, that the, however it was that it operated has now... Uh, you know, um, ended just because it's it's a more intangible rendering of service. It's a more sort of intangible provision mm. of support and and um, you know household creation that's not just wiping noses and and you know pulling on socks. That it somehow is devalued. Yes, I suppose it's it, it's you could look at it as separating the issue of hourly rate from the service provided. So in terms of hourly rate, you need to apply a commercial rate. But you're not looking at what would it be reasonable to employ a professional nanny or housekeeper to do. Um, you're looking at what what would have been done by that parent, and then apply a commercial rate to it. So you wouldn't you wouldn't um, employ someone to come and stand and shout at the bottom of the stairs to get your teenager out of bed, um, and the various other small tasks that that you do throughout each day. Um, but you you calculate the time that would have been spent doing that and apply the commercial rate nonetheless. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Um, I mean, there's quite a good little um, sort of summary of, of that in Spittle and Money, um, the 1988 case, when uh, looking at um, the fact that Mrs Spittle, who, who died, um, and the sort of the jury direction was that uh, nobody was being paid or would be paid as a substitute mother. But that wasn't the point. We've dealt with all that. Um, but also the idea of when children get older, they may get more independent of their parents and less in need of being looked after. In the early years, the services, you know, are pretty obviously rendered or costed by by the provision of service of a, of a nanny. But as the child grows older, it gets to school age, goes to school on their own, or whatever, whatever. You're not you're not comparing like with like. Um, but um, while well, you need to then value the service. Uh, the sort of yardstick of a nanny's wage is less appropriate. Uh, yeah. The service is there, but it changes in nature. But the only thing that I find a problem with that is in practical terms, you can't really employ someone just to turn up for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. 
you know, I mean, it's uh, it's in actual practical terms of how do you fill that gap? Very often you will have to employ someone for longer because otherwise it's not a kind of proper job. So you can't really, you know, switch someone on and off. No, I think you'd be hard pushed to find anyone who was um, happy to sign up just for those hours. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be left without employment in, in the middle of the day is, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just not a practical solution. No, so in fact, you probably end up paying for more than you need in order to secure someone. Yes, I, I, I think often what happens is that you then end up paying for someone who, who then takes care of the house as well and you incorporate other elements of domestic service into that cost and that won't always be appropriate yeah no that makes sense and in the case of Corbett and Barking Havering and Brentwood the uh, solution to what do you do when the kids go to school uh, was divide the multiple can in half (laughs) so you've got half a nanny once the kids were at school age yeah or a whole nanny for half the time in practice (laughs) (laughs) yeah even Mm. even harder to find someone to take that job oh we'll just have your top half thank you (laughs) (laughs) anyway but um anyway so ways ways of sort of trying to think of ways of looking at measuring loss so sort of lost income the decision's got to be reasonable um and you've got to sort of look at the value of the dependency um and and look at the sort of um the wages lost less any income received to sort of see if it's reasonable to give up work for example so in the case of Mehmet and Perry um um, a a father gave up his job um to look after his children um and on the one hand that seems a bit sort of unruly because the cost of employing someone to provide that care would have been or render that service would have been lower but those children had tragically had um, a rather rare blood disorder and so that was that was a factor that um, you know sort of tipped balance. Mm. But generally, you have to sort of look at the reasonableness of it. And although it's not as as blunt an instrument as uh, a sort of normal injury claim, when you just take the hourly rate of a carer, and if your job was paying threefold, that was just you know your bad luck. That's your choice. That's not quite the way it goes here. But um, you do have to have a sort of weather eye. And it is relatively rare, isn't it, for a care claim to be valued on the basis of lost income? Yeah, no, it is. And, and I suppose, well, those facts and figures always like to quote Bernie Eccleston. Um, you wouldn't, you know, allow his hourly rate to uh, be that which governed the uh, cost of the service that he rendered. <laughs> I don't think I've ever noticed that, <laughs> facts and figures. Oh, always. Um, years and years and years in the introduction, they always used to talk about how much you don't. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, whether or not it would skew oh. the um you know whether it would skew the average earnings yes <laughs> uh, well there you are there's a oh. top tip you see how interesting yeah. i am that's what i read <laughs> in my spare time showing myself up as someone who's never read the introduction to vaccine ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear anyway so it's not always a surviving parent that gives up work um, to look after children. In the case of Creswell and Eton, it was actually the children's aunts that gave up work after um, their mother died. Um, and the court said, where a claim is based in large part upon a relative's actual loss of earnings reasonably incurred, a modest discount only should be made to reflect the part-time nature of the deceased mother's care. And that's so even if it's as much as the emotional as the physical needs of the children, which make it reasonable for the relative to give up work. Oh, so that goes back a bit. That's a bit more supportive of the point that I was making about, you know, the, the nature of the care or the service that you render isn't always practical. It can be emotional as well. 
Absolutely. And as you say, that's going to increasingly be the case as, as children get older. Yeah. Yeah. So the aunt gave up her work and that was deemed reasonable. And uh, so her loss of earnings, her loss of earnings was um, um, less than would have been paid to an alternative carer. So her lost earnings were given back to her. So it was a pyrrhic victory if it was less than the, uh, the cost of the alternative carer, but there you go. Well, maybe not pyrrhic. I mean, maybe that's what they wanted to do. <laughs> true. But um, true. yeah, no, it's, perhaps, it's, it's perhaps not a good example of getting more money, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there we are. In Manning and Jing's, uh, the, a wife um, and a mother died uh, as a result of um, clinical negligence tragically um and the widower claimed a loss of her services around the house including you know cleaning shopping washing cooking and um, the children claimed the loss of her services as a mother uh, and also um the surviving parent claimed the cost of boarding school uh, because he said as a widower he couldn't keep taking them to and from school and carrying them for them after work and holding down his own job he just couldn't manage the daily run so he put them into boarding school and then claimed the cost of that. Uh, now, the judge said, basically, you can't have both. So if I'm going to give you an award, which I am, on the basis of your lost household services, then you can have the cost of providing those services, providing those maternity services, um, uh, maternal, sorry, not maternity, maternal services and the household provision. But I'm not giving you the money for the boarding school on top because that's double recovery. Uh, so, in fact, there was a payment for care and services and the kids went to boarding school. But there we yeah. are. Nobody looks at how you spend your damages, do they? Somewhat surprising that that, that that particular issue got all the way to court, isn't it, really? As it's a fairly obvious double recovery to have both. Yeah. Maybe there were other issues as well, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to hope so. So, I mean, of course, we've talked an awful lot about children and... Um, sometimes people don't have children. I mean, the canal case is one with uh, with um, two adults and the, the services that are rendered. Uh, and Sloan and Halson is a claim with no children involved, um, but it's, you know, care and companionship. Um, uh, in particular, there, the poor widow left behind was visually impaired and so was very reliant on a partner for providing access and, uh, you know, getting to health care and uh, generally looking after uh, looking after him with his poor sight. Um, but you were going to talk about foster foster care as well, because, of course, families come in many shapes and sizes. They do. And unfortunately, foster children don't fall into that closed category of dependence um, for the purposes of Fatal Accidents Act. But there is a case, case of Witham against Steve Hill Limited, which deals with um, services provided for the benefit of foster children, so for the benefit of non-dependents, and, and whether or not a claim could be made for that. So the deceased had died of mesothelioma. He and his wife had two foster children who were long-term foster placements, and both of whom had an autistic spectrum disorder diagnosis, so required an awful lot of, uh, of care. And it was part of their agreement the for having the foster children with them, that one of the parents had to be available to the children pretty much on a full-time basis. So one of the one of the parents had to be at home. They'd made the decision in their family um, that he would stay at home and care for the children and she was going to go back to work as a full-time paediatric nurse. Um, now, obviously, after he died, somebody had to replace the care for the foster children uh, and 
the wife did that. Now, as they weren't dependents for the benefits for the purposes of the Act, the foster children couldn't claim a services dependency. And on that basis, the defendant said there could be no recovery for the services that would be provided to the children. Uh, and the court didn't agree with that approach. Uh, the judge found uh, as a fact that the def- dependency here was in fact the claimant's dependency, the wife, rather than the foster children. Mm. Because in, in reality, what the judge said was that the claimant had lost her career as a result of her husband's death. She'd been dependent upon him as a principal carer for the children to allow her to pursue a career that would have been for the benefit of the whole family. So in, in other words, the judge said it was effectively the family's loss of the husband acting as a principal carer, and it was the family's finances that were decreasing by the measure of the claimant's loss of earnings. Um, but that didn't detract from the fact that it, it, it would be categorised as the, the claimant's, the wife's loss. Um, so the dependency was therefore recoverable in law on the basis that she had a reasonable expectation of a pecuniary advantage, namely the money she would have earned from the continuation of her husband's life, because he would have continued to look after their home and their children. Um, Rather oddly, having made the decision that the the, uh, claim was recoverable on that basis, that that she had the reasonable expectation of earning money, and that's what the expectation was. When it came to the measure of damages, the judge agreed with the defendant that it wouldn't be appropriate to value that dependency on the basis of the claimant's loss of earnings. And they said that was not within the ambit of Section 3.1. You couldn't have loss of earnings um, as the measure of damages for her services claim. And the appropriate measure of damages was the cost of replacement care. And the judge, the judge said that he could see no reason why the proper measure of damages should be anything other than the commercial cost of that care, even though the claimant herself was, of course, providing it on a gratuitous basis. So going back to the Knauer point, um, that in order to determine the value of the service which would have been provided by the husband, the commercial rate uh, was the appropriate rate without any reduction for gratuitous care. Um, But I find this case quite interesting because I do think there is a tension there between categorising the loss as one of a reasonable expectation of pecuniary advantage, namely earnings, and the measure of that loss being a commercial rate for care as opposed to the loss of those earnings. Um, Yeah. one was looking at it um, as a more ordinary um, case of, of a parent giving up work to, to look after their children. The question would be, was it reasonable to give up work? And in those circumstances, you'd think on, on these facts, surely yes, because the foster arrangements required one parent to be available to yeah. the children at all times. So how could it possibly be? How could you do otherwise? Yeah because she had no real real option. Um, nevertheless, there seemed to be a, a reluctance to value on the basis of the lost earnings. Ah, but that's interesting. And, and actually, that other complicated layer, that there's an obligation as well as a desire to be present. Yes, absolutely. It's quite an unusual set of factual circumstances that, that you would have thought if ever, if ever there was a case where a court could award the loss of earnings and say, well, it, de- it all depends on the facts... In this case turns on its facts. You'd have thought this would be the one, but apparently not. <laughs> you can never tell. Um, I mean, it reminds me of the fact that um, the needs um, are not the test, but what the, de- the deceased would have provided. Uh, and that was underlined in the Zambada and shipbreaking case 2013, uh, when Mr Justice Leighton Williams reminded himself and all of us at the same time, um, the test is not what the 
claimant needs, but what the deceased would have provided. And that was in a case where a widow, um, a widow made a claim following death from mesothelioma um, um, of her husband, and, and she claimed for the care that was given to her because of complex pre-existing health problems. Mm -hmm. um, and the deceased would have provided that care, therefore that became the benchmark of the claim. Yes, of course that can work against the claimants as, as well, can't it? If the court finds that a deceased parent would have been a particularly inattentive and unhelpful parent, the hmm. value of the claim for services can be reduced accordingly, which um, seems seems a little unfair to the poor children who've suffered having yeah. a, an inadequate parent and, and then are not entitled to have the value of replacing it with adequate services. And, of course, that inadequate parent has tragically died and uh, yeah. so you know assuming that there was uh, as uh, they say the special qualitative qualitative factor of love and affection you know it's a it's a double blow so, and it's easy mm. to remember actually when we're talking about these cases and you know this that and that i mean you know they are all predicated on on heartbreak really yes something that often gets gets forgotten about in the mathematical equations yeah so there we are but hopefully that will have given a little bit of an oversight into some of the issues to remember when you do have a services claim. Uh, they're not exactly the same as personal injury claims and hopefully we have uh, given you some hints and tips of how to work your way around them. Thanks very much, Romilly. Thank you, Emily. Bye. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.